Hello and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I am joined by Professor Naomi Schoenbaum, an Associate Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., and an expert in anti-discrimination law, particularly the law of sex discrimination. Professor Schoenbaum spoke with me about her forthcoming article titled The New Law of Gender Nonconformity, which discusses the history and future of transgender discrimination in the law. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review this fall. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Good morning, Professor Schoenbaum. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. So to start off our conversation today, I thought it would be useful to try to pin down some concepts and terms that are pretty important to your article and the argument you advance in it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a word and then ask you to define and sort of talk about that word uh, as it exists in the context of your piece. Um, Sound like a plan? Yes, that sounds great. All right. So the first word is gender. Sure. Um, So gender, and it might be helpful actually um, to contrast um, gender with sex. And these are both terms uh, that have been used in um, the sex discrimination law and by sex discrimination scholars. And there's a pretty accepted distinction between the term sex and the term gender. Um, And perhaps the um, best way to think about this is um, sex has always been seen to be something that's biological, something that's based in the body. Um, And it's never been strictly defined as um, anatomy or chromosomes, but something biological, whereas gender is something socially layered on top. Um, So you might think of sex as who you are and gender as what you do. Perfect. Okay, that makes sense. So in in the piece, you also mentioned that there's an old idea of sex and maybe a new idea of sex. And I think you kind of hinted at it there. Um, in your definition. Would you mind expanding a little bit on that? Sure. Um, So the old idea of sex um, is that it's something that comes um, defined by what's between your legs, your genitalia. And the new view of sex is that it's defined by what's uh, between your ears, your brain. Um, And note that that the new view of sex still tracks uh, the sort of biological uh, basis of sex that I talked about a moment ago, Um, there is primarily uh, an agreement among folks who study this that the new view of sex, although it's based in one's self-perception from their own um, brain, um, that this is something that you're born with and that is biologically based. Um, And I just want to make one more note about the terms old, the old view of sex and the new view of sex. One of the things I came upon in my research that I thought was really interesting is that the quote unquote new view of sex um, is is actually not not entirely new, even in law, Um, even in these, uh, in at least one um, old sex discrimination case addressing transgender rights from the 1980s, um, Ulaine out of the Seventh Circuit, there were dueling um, experts in that case. And one of the experts um, said that sex is at least partially determined by self-perception. So while the new view of sex is becoming increasingly accepted, um, it's not actually all that new. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Next term here is gender nonconforming person. 
Sure. Uh, so a gender nonconforming person is a person whose gender presentation, so either their appearance, the way they dress, their hairstyle, um, or their gender performance, um, their behavior, does not comport with the stereotypical expectations of their sex. Um, so men traditionally are expected to act in masculine ways, and women are traditionally expected to act in feminine ways. So a man who is feminine or a woman who is masculine uh, would be considered a gender nonconforming person. One key example from law is the plaintiff Ann Hopkins in uh, a case called Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but she was a um, perceived to be a masculine woman. She was macho um, in her performance, according to her employer, and also um, didn't wear makeup, style her hair, or dress femininely. And so she was perceived to be a gender nonconforming person. Okay. And then perhaps in contrast, maybe that's not the right way to describe it, but the next term here would be transgender person. Yeah. So transgender person is an umbrella term that can include two types of persons. Um, it can include somebody who's gender nonconforming in the way I just described, um, an effeminate man or a masculine woman. And it can um, include a person whose uh, identity, their sex identity, um, who they believe themselves to be in terms of their sex, does not comport with the sex that they were designated at birth. Um, so I described Ann Hopkins as a masculine woman. Um, and so we can contrast that um, with somebody who was designated female at birth, um, but who believes themselves um, to be a man. Um, and a the term transgender can include both of those persons. I focus on the latter definition of transgender, somebody whose um, self-identity in terms of their sex does not comport with what was designated at birth, um, because the, this is the primary um, focus of the cases. Um, so that's uh, largely how I'm going to be using the term transgender today. Gotcha. Okay. And that, that tracks with the, the phrase you said a couple minutes ago, uh, sex is who you are, gender is what you do. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Now to get into maybe the meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about today and kind of turn to the law and the history of these ideas that you've just talked about in the law. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned the, the Price Waterhouse case. So I was wondering if you could kind of at a higher level trace the history of these ideas, particularly uh, transgender discrimination uh, in the law, um, and then also, you know, try to tie in the, the gender nonconformity doctrine, which is um, kind of the heart of what we want to get to today. Sure. Um, so I'll start with how um, the courts recognized the gender nonconformity doctrine, um, and then I can talk about how transgender persons were fit or not fit into that. Um, so first, uh, the gender nonconformity doctrine uh, came about with the Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins case. This was a Title VII case. That's the federal employment discrimination law. The Supreme Court decided this case in 1989. 
Um, and I talked a little bit about Ann Hopkins already. The evidence in the case was that her employer perceived her to be masculine. Um, the employer thought that in order to be promoted for partnership at her accounting firm, that she should um, walk more femininely, talk more femininely, dress more femininely, um, style her hair and wear makeup. Um, so it was pretty obvious that her employer perceived her not to conform to the traditional stereotypes of her sex. And the court held that this was sex discrimination. The court said we are beyond the day where an employer can expect a person's sex to match her gender. Um, and interestingly, there is expert evidence in the case about sex stereotypes um, and that these stereotypes um, where women are expected to be feminine at work, particularly in jobs like Ann Hopkins, where they're also expected to be masculine to perform well in their job, that this holds women back at work. And we know now that this holds men back at work too. Think of a male uh, preschool teacher who's expected to be very masculine. That might be a challenge in his job. Um, so there is this sort of psychological understanding and sociological reality present in the case about how these types of gender expectations hold women back at work. And again, as I said, we know this can hold men back at work now too. But I want to be clear that just because um, Pricewaterhouse speaks about uh, gender performance, that the court um, explained how this is sex discrimination qua sex. And this is because a similarly situated man to Ann Hopkins, that is a masculine man, would not have been told to behave more femininely. Um, so the court says men and women are being treated differently by this employer, and that is sex discrimination. Okay, so how does this um, get translated into the transgender context? Um, so I identify three stages in my article. Um, the first is non-recognition. And these are the early cases where transgender plaintiffs sought protection from sex discrimination under Title VII, the same law that Ann Hopkins used. And courts first rejected their claims uh, that transgender discrimination was sex discrimination. Um, this was before the gender nonconformity doctrine came into being. They said that sex discrimination was discrimination simply for being male or for being female, and that transgender discrimination did not qualify. This changed after the gender nonconformity doctrine came into place. And in a case in the Sixth Circuit uh, called Smith from 2004, um, this is the first case where a court of appeals clearly adopts the gender nonconformity doctrine to protect a transgender plaintiff from sex discrimination. There, there's a plaintiff, um, Smith, who was designated male at birth, and he was um, started to present um, as a woman, and uh, uh, this uh, worker is then discriminated against, and um, protection is sought under the gender nonconformity conformity theory. And the Sixth Circuit says that the plaintiff Smith is in the same position as Ann Hopkins, simply reversed for his sex. So Ann Hopkins was a masculine woman. Um, Smith is an effeminate man. And if a masculine woman is protected from expectations of gender for conformity, so too is a, an effeminate man. Um, and so what's really important to note is how the 
gender nonconformity theory understands transgender persons. Um, so the gender nonconformity understands transgender persons to be the sex that they are designated at birth, um, and they are simply changing their gender presentation. So they are seen, transgender persons are seen just like Anne Hopkins, gender nonconforming persons. And one thing to note, in contrast to um, the early cases, these early courts that were looking at transgender persons, they denied protection, but they recognized that being transgender was about changing your sex. Um, and they said, well, these people don't get protection, but they, there's dicta in there saying a, a recognition that what they're trying to do is to change their sex. What happens after the Smith case, when the gender nonconformity doctrine gets applied to transgender persons, not only is there uh, protection that is granted to these persons, but in granting this protection, courts change their understanding of what it means to be transgender. Um, they understand a transgender person not to be changing their sex, but simply to be changing their gender. Um, and I'll talk about later um, why that's so key in terms of understanding what I think are the harms of applying the gender nonconformity theory to transgender plaintiffs. The third stage I identify after courts apply the gender nonconformity theory to um, protect transgender plaintiffs from sex discrimination, understanding them to retain the sex they were designated at birth, simply changing their gender, is an intensification of that approach. Um, there are some circuits that say that discrimination against transgender persons is per se gender nonconformity discrimination. So the Smith case that I referenced out of the Sixth Circuit, um, the court there looks to the evidence of the employer's motive for discrimination and says the employer's motive there is based on the plaintiff's gender nonconforming behavior. Some courts take it a step further and say discrimination against transgender persons is per se um, sex discrimination because that discrimination must be because transgender persons fail to conform their gender to their sex. So this is a judicial recognition that transgender persons per se retain the sex that they were designated at birth and simply change their gender. Okay. Okay. Got it. So as I was reading along in your piece, I was initially very confused by this distinction and this reading of the case law that you advanced, because in my head, it seemed like the early courts recognized that this discrimination was happening on a basis of sex, but then refused to grant protection. But then after the gender nonconformity doctrine came about, the courts granted protection, but on the basis of gender. So in my head, it was almost like the, the perfect wrong in both directions. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair way to think about it. I mean, one way to, to view this is um, thinking about practical consequences and legal strategy. And in the piece, I'm mostly focused on courts, right? Um, but there's a role for advocates here as well, right? Um, you know, in these early cases, advocates had to decide how to frame these cases. And after the Price Waterhouse cases decided, it might have been seen by advocates 
to um, be the best strategy, you know, the most likely route for success for transgender plaintiffs to um, present themselves as gender nonconformers in the same vein as Ann Hopkins. Um, that not only is it, was that theory recognized, um, but you know there was a background, a precedent that made it hard for transgender persons to go forward on another theory. Right? These early courts had rejected sex discrimination protection on the ground that transgender persons were, you know, changing their sex. So perhaps this was viewed as the best strategy going forward, and it was the price that advocates thought had to be paid, right, um, mm, to frame okay. them in this thing that um, had been accepted and perhaps made transgender persons, you know, more palatable. At that time, we weren't really accepting that transgender persons as a society, we weren't really accepting the idea of transgender persons changing their sex. So perhaps this was thought to be the most legally likely to be legally successful and perhaps also socially acceptable as well. Gotcha. Okay. But you also then go on to talk about how, you know, maybe as you just said, that was the best advocate strategy, but it also had some negative consequences. Um, you identify three different ones in your piece. And I wanted to talk about each of those three uh, in turn here, as they're pretty important to the argument you advance later on. Um, first, you, you identify something called compelling losses. Could you expand on that? Sure. Um, so in order to understand the idea of compelling losses, it's helpful to think of transgender discrimination, sex discrimination claims as being divided into two groups. The first type of case is a case like Smith. Um, and that's a case where the claim discrimination is on the basis of gender nonconforming behavior. These are the cases that I call the gender performance cases. And in these cases, the gender nonconformity doctrine um, largely provided victory. Um, and uh, I'll come back to those later. Um, but the second set of cases are uh, what I call the sex classification cases. And these are cases where transgender persons are not simply claiming that they've been discriminated against on the basis of their gender performance. What they're claiming is a right to be recognized for the sex um, that they identify as. Um, and so I can give an example uh, from Amy Stevens. Um, Amy Stevens is the transgender plaintiff whose case was um, consolidated with the Bostock case. Uh, so um, that was the Supreme Court decision from earlier this year. In that case, Amy Stevens claimed not only that she was discriminated against on the basis of her gender performance, um, but also she sought the right to comply with her employer's uh, dress code for women. The employer had a sex-segregated dress code, and she sought the right to uh, wear a skirt suit, which was what women were required to wear. Um, and uh, so she's seeking a right of recognition. And in these cases, transgender plaintiffs have fared far worse. Um, and so uh, I can give an example out of the Tenth Circuit, a case called At City versus Utah Transit Authority. And there, there's a transgender woman who was designated male at birth um, who wants to use the women's bathroom. And the court says that she is not protected because this discrimination doesn't have anything to do with gender, gender nonconforming conduct 
on the part of the plaintiff. Um, And to spell that out a little bit further, what the court is essentially saying is the employer's decision to disallow you from using the women's bathroom, this is about sex. The employer has a rule that only women can use the women's bathroom, and this plaintiff is a man. So this is discrimination on the basis of sex, not on the basis of your um, gendered behavior. Um, And so the gender nonconformity doctrine um, isn't going to protect you. So when I talk about compelling losses, um, if transgender plaintiffs proceed forward on a theory of discrimination that turns on perceptions of gender performance, when the discrimination is actually based on sex, it's not going to protect them. I can give another example from the Amy Stevens case. Um, There's an aspect of the case that I think is often overlooked um, because it was not an issue uh, that was pursued before the Supreme Court. But in the lower courts, um, as I mentioned before, Amy Stevens does have a sex classification claim. She wants to um, be able to comply with the uh, dress code for women. And the trial court uh, just gets so confused by this. Um, It cannot understand why Amy Stevens was seeking the right to conform with the women's dress code rather than challenging the sex stereotypical dress code um, because the doctrine under which she is uh, proceeding, the gender nonconformity doctrine, is supposed to be about fighting sex stereotypes. So... You know, when you think about the gender nonconformity doctrine, typically you think of folks like Ann Hopkins who fought sex-based rules. Stevens doesn't fight sex-based rules. She's seeking access to this sex-based rule. And the court just could not wrap its head around this. Um, And it couldn't, I think, and as I argue, um, because transgender persons shouldn't be thought of as gender nonconformers. Gotcha. Okay. And I know you you argue later in the piece how we can resolve that. But I, so we'll get to that, but I want to touch on the other two um, consequences that you identify for treating transgender discrimination uh, under the, the gender nonconformity uh, doctrine. So the, the second consequence you discuss is what you call Pyrrhic victories. Um, could you elaborate on that topic as well? Sure. Um, so I spoke a moment ago about the two types of cases, the sex classification cases and the gender performance cases. Um, And the gender performance cases are cases where transgender um, persons have been largely successful under the gender nonconformity theory. Um, But what I argue is that even when these transgender um, plaintiffs win, they undermine the larger cause of transgender rights. Um, And this is because each win cements a view of transgender persons um, that does not conform with transgender transgender person's view of their own identity or with the trend in medicine and other areas of law um, where there's an increasing recognition that sex is a matter of self-identity. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting to note an irony here, and perhaps a cruel irony. Um, it's other areas of law um, that are progressively recognizing um, transgender persons for who they are, um, and tr- sex discrimination law that is not. And let me spell that out a little bit. Um, Increasingly in medicine, there is this view, as I spoke about this new view of sex, um, where sex is seen to come from between your ears, not between your legs. Um, This idea that persons are the sex that they identify as regardless of their anatomy. And 
other areas of law outside of sex discrimination law have increasingly come to recognize this as well. Um, the federal government recognizes this in terms of your passport, um, that you can have the sex redesignated on your passport um, simply based on a doctor um, saying that you've sought the appropriate treatment for um, your uh, sex identity. You don't have to have any change in anatomy. Um, around 20 states agree in terms of birth certificates and driver's licenses. Um, so we have this um, increasing movement in medicine and in other areas of law recognizing the new view of sex. But when we apply the gender nonconformity doctrine to transgender plaintiffs in sex discrimination law, we bake in a view of sex that is not that. Um, and we bake in a view of trans, being transgender that is not that. Um, it's about um, sex designated at birth as static um, and perhaps as um, static for life um, as compared with the new view of sex, which recognizes um, the appropriateness of shifting the designated sex based on one's own uh, self-perception. To be sure, not everyone agrees with this. Um, not all medical professionals and not all areas of law agree with the new view of sex. Um, but my claim isn't that the um, gender nonconformity doctrine is in conflict with an, a fully accepted uh, view of sex, but that it, it um, is cementing a view that's increasingly out of step with the progressive notions that are being adopted in other areas. Okay, got it. So you also then kind of take those two consequences and use them to illustrate how um, uh, approaching transgender discrimination through the gender nonconforming doctrine actually produces a negative consequence for cisgendered gender nonconforming persons. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that as well? Sure. Um, so what I argue is that when you treat transgender persons, as gender, gender nonconformers under the gender nonconformity doctrine, they become natural reference in judges' minds and even in um, legal reasoning to cisgender plaintiffs that are proceeding on the same doctrine. Um, and I'm throwing out another term. Um, so to define cisgender is um, somebody who's not transgender. Um, it's somebody who... Um, believes that their sex is um, the sex that they were designated at birth. Um, and so by treating transgender persons as gender nonconformers under the doctrine, you're, you have transgender persons and cisgender persons who become reference for each other um, as precedents. And I think when you compare the cisgender claims to the transgender claims, the cisgender claims are going to fare poorly. Um, and this is for two main reasons. One is the nature of the different nature of the evidence in the two different types of cases. And two is um, the type of relief that is sought. Um, so first, I will um, talk about the type of evidence. In the transgender discrimination claims, the uh, typically, there will be evidence of a condition called gender dysphoria, um, which is basically a, a recognition that a person, um, the sex they were designated at birth does not comport with their own sense of sex, and that in order to alleviate this dysphoria, these persons need to um, change the sex they were designated at birth. 
Um, and so this need to change one's presentation to the world is substantiated by objective medical evidence in the form of this diagnosis. By contrast, in the cisgender cases, the evidence is subjective. Um, so let me speak about um, one of the m- perhaps most well-known cases, um, aside from Anne Hopkins' case of gender nonconformity uh, discrimination with cisgender plaintiffs. It's a case called Jesperson out of the Ninth Circuit um, from the early 2000s. And in the Jesperson case, uh, Jesperson worked at a casino, and the casino put in place a um, sex-based appearance code, one of the requirements was that women had to wear makeup, Um, Jesperson's woman, and she challenges this uh, female-only makeup requirement, and her basis for challenging it is that she does not like to wear makeup. It makes her uncomfortable. But the evidence she presents is her own testimony about this discomfort. It's subjective evidence. Um, And so it's much easier for courts to proceed forward on cases based on objective rather than subjective evidence, right? It's naturally cabined, and courts don't have to make judgment calls about when um, this uh, gender performance is necessary and when it's not. I also spoke um, about the different types of relief that are sought in these two different cases. Um, In the case of Amy Stevens, for example, when we think about a transgender plaintiff um, who uh, is seeking access to a sex-based dress code, that's not unsettling to the employer's prerogatives and to the employer's business practices. Um, Somebody like Amy Stevens says, employer, keep your sex-based dress code in place. I just want to comply um, with the sex that comports with my own identity. Somebody like Jesperson is doing something quite different. She's trying to challenge a dress code. She wants to um, strike it down, right? Um, And so I think that's another reason why judges are going to uh, find the transgender cases easier to grant relief. Um, They're not unsettling employers' business practices and perhaps, you know, uh, even more broadly, accepted sex-based norms in society, um, whereas cisgender plaintiffs like Jesperson um, do present a challenge to that. Um, So I think when these folks proceed, transgender and cisgender plaintiffs proceed under the same theory, judges can feel that they can allow the transgender claims to go forward, feel like they're um, giving credence to the theory in these cases that are easier to um, cabin and less unsettling to norms, and then deny relief to cisgender plaintiffs um, who are more problematic. Okay. Okay. So all of that is kind of going on, uh, and I'll try to put like a timestamp here for the listener. So all of that is going on in this history that you've just described uh, with these issues and these misconceptions is is kind of the state of the courts, uh, if if you will, in the spring of 2020. And then in June of 2020, the Supreme Court issues its decision in a case that we've mentioned called Bostock v. Clayton County. Bostock, excuse me. Um, so can we can we start by digging kind of into what Bostock was all about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So the Bostock case was a case, it was um, a bunch of cases that were consolidated. um, And they asked whether transgender discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination 
um, amount to sex discrimination under Title VII. Again, that's our federal employment discrimination law. Um, And I'll focus on the transgender part for purposes of my piece. Um, I already spoke about the transgender plaintiff in that case, Amy Stevens, um, who was designated male at birth, but um, was a woman. Um, And the court holds that discrimination against Amy Stevens for being transgender is is sex discrimination. Um, And what's notable about the case uh, is that it relies on the statutory text. It's a pure textual analysis to say that a person designated male at birth who identifies as a woman, if that person is treated differently than a person designated um, female at birth who identifies as a woman, this is sex discrimination. Um, so uh, this is treating males and females differently. And so this um, is prohibited by Title Seven. And I mean, in my head and reading your piece, it seems like that's a, a huge step forward, at least in, in how the, the courts are handling um, these concepts. Is, and so, so Bostock is a, is a step forward, you would say. Is that, is that fair? I try to identify the progress that Bostock marks while also um, noting a few um, elements of concern. Um, So I'll speak to the progress. Um, So it relies on this textual approach um, to statutory interpretation, as I said, in deciding the meaning of sex discrimination. And so it doesn't discuss gender nonconformity at all. It doesn't discuss sex stereotyping at all. And it doesn't cite the Price Waterhouse case for these principles. Um, so I think it does mark a lot of progress uh, because it avoids this whole problem that I identify in the first place that stems from relying on the gender nonconformity theory. Um, it does not treat transgender persons as persons who are the sex they were designated at birth. It does not treat being transgender as necessarily about retaining one's designated sex and changing one's gender. Um, And so it gets one thing exactly right that I think the gender nonconformity doctrine um, got wrong. Um, it, It opens up the possibility to recognize that being transgender is about changing one's designated sex, not about changing one's gender. Um, and the court, I'll, I'll mention a few specific things um, the court does that I think uh, highlight this. Um, one is that um, they refer to Amy Stevens as a person who identified as male, was identified um, as male at birth, but now identifies as female. Or I should say they, that's how um, the court refers to a transgender woman. Um, it uses female pronouns to refer to Amy Stevens. Um, and at least with reference to Stevens herself, it even um, um, avoids noting that she was designated male at birth. Um, so the, the theory the court relies on does not rely on any fixed notion of a person's sex. Um, and the decision tries to avoid the thorny issue of defining what sex means altogether. Um, it proceeds on the assumption uh, that sex uh, refers to biological distinctions between male and female. Um, and uh, so in that way, it just says we're assuming this, but it doesn't um, try to reach any, any conclusion about it. And in reaching 
the conclusion that it does, again, it leaves open this possibility that, and suggests, in fact, that being transgender is about changing one's sex rather than changing gender. Okay, so Bostock avoids the pitfalls of sort of misclassifying transgender persons as gender nonconformers, but then you also mentioned that maybe Bostock didn't, didn't go as far as it needed to or as far as it should have. Um, could you talk a little bit then about what you think Bostock didn't do correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Bostock relies on a pure textual analysis. Its whole analysis about whether transgender discrimination is sex discrimination um, is conducted based on hypotheticals. So I think we can really distinguish uh, the reasoning in Bostock from earlier sex discrimination precedents like uh, like the Pricewaterhouse case. Um, And we can distinguish it, you know, it's really based in text and Pricewaterhouse, there's some, you know, textual understanding, you know, this is sex discrimination because we're having expectations of a woman that we wouldn't have of a man. Um, But it's not just that. It's not just the emphasis on text. Um, It's also, I think... um, what's missing from the opinion. The Price Waterhouse case explained how discrimination operated in that case as a psychological and a sociological phenomenon. And and it explained how this was harmful to the anti-stereotyping goals of sex discrimination law. So as I mentioned earlier, there's expert evidence about how what the uh, discrimination that Ann Hopkins experienced in that case, how that fits into a broader phenomenon of sex stereotyping and how this holds women back in the workplace. And I explained um, how that can hold men back in the workplace too. So there's this reality of how discrimination operates on the ground and how that fits into our broader understanding of why sex discrimination is so problematic as a systemic matter. That's all missing for Bostock. Um, there is nothing. There is nothing like that in Bostock. As I said, it's just textual analysis and, and hypotheticals. Um, and I don't mean to minimize it. Of course, the result is hugely important. Um, but I think what's missing is important too. Um, Kavanaugh's dissent tries to separate LGBTQ rights from women's rights as a sociological and historical phenomenon, and the court does not respond. Um, so I think there's there's a hole there in terms of understanding how transgender rights really connect up to women's rights and the broader goals of what sex discrimination law has always aimed to do. And that, that kind of actually gets at my next question was, I was curious if you thought that omission or omissions was maybe a, a, a conscious choice by the court or to like consciously ignore Kavanaugh's dissent and the, the social um, aspects of it? Or do you think it's just indicative of the court or at least the majority not still not quite fully understanding um, the concepts that are at play in these decisions? So I, I think they had to have realized this. There were dozens of amicus briefs in the case, um, and a lot of them connected the uh, transgender discrimination to um, discrimination that women and men have traditionally experienced in terms of sex stereotypes um, and expectations about sex and gender. Um, I think it's really more practical than that. I think that um, it may have been needed 
this this textual analysis um, of what I sort of characterize as a dry textual analysis may have been needed to get Gorsuch and Roberts on board. And that's mm. really important. Um, this is a 6-3 decision. Um, and note that Price Waterhouse was a plurality decision. We get a strong, you know, I think a stronger statement from the court, this being 6-3. Um, it's hard to imagine that Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't realize um, that this was a dry textual analysis that doesn't speak to the reality of how transgender discrimination is connected to the anti-stereotyping goals of sex discrimination law. Um, but I think uh, Ginsburg and the other, you know, more liberal members of the court probably realized that sometimes you need to go along to get along um, and that the practical decisions, uh, the practicalities of this are really important. Um, so uh, they were willing to kind of accept the decision as it was to get Roberts and Gorsuch there and have a 6-3 decision. Um, I just wish uh, that they hadn't included some of the most problematic parts of the decision. There is one part of the decision um, where I, I spoke mostly about the silence, the void um, in terms of what Bostock is missing about connecting transgender discrimination to sex discrimination. There's one part of the opinion where the court is kind of talking about a bunch of different cases where it's uh, hypotheticals, where it suggests that uh, transgender discrimination is separate and apart from sex stereotyping and from expectations about gender. Um, that I wish, I wish, you know, Ginsburg had picked up on that and changed the hypothetical. Um, but I can certainly understand why the liberal members of the court, uh, you know, signed on to an opinion uh, like this. Mm-hmm. So, so one more question looking backwards, then I, I want to talk a little bit about what the future looks like under Bostock. So the question looking backwards here, and I think you've maybe already answered this halfways, um, is if, if you could go back and revise the the Bostock decision, what, what would that opinion say? I'm, I'm guessing what you just mentioned would be omitted or at least revised, as you said. Sure. I would want to change that one, <laughs> that one example <laughs> uh, to, so that it didn't imply uh, that these two types of discrimination were different. Um, but mostly it would be to add what was missing. It would be to respond to Kavanaugh about how discrimination against transgender persons and uh, the sex stereotyping discrimination that women and men have long faced are linked. Um, to explain that this is sex discrimination in the same way that we have traditionally recognized um, and that sex discrimination law has traditionally tried to fight. And I can give an example uh, to explain this. I think we can see this in the reasons behind the resistance to transgender persons changing their designated sex. And you can see this, Caitlyn Jenner may be the most um, uh, example that speaks to the most people. You can see this uh, with Caitlyn Jenner. You can see it with Amy Stevens, uh, one of the plaintiffs in the Bostock case. And many other cases of transgender discrimination share this feature. Um, that a man is too masculine to be considered a woman. Um, and I think you can see this really clearly with Caitlyn Jenner. Um, because Caitlyn Jenner... Uh, when she was presenting as a man, was sort of the apotheosis of masculinity. You may be too young to remember this, and actually, I am a little too young to remember this myself. Um, but Caitlyn Jenner was, uh, when she presented as a man, an Olympic athlete. Um, mm -hmm. And not just that. I mean, she was a famous Olympic athlete who was seen as the height of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the commentary when uh, she uh, uh, presented as a woman was like, it's just so hard for me to accept this because she's so masculine. And underlying that 
are two key stereotypes that sex discrimination law has long sought to combat, which is if you're a man, you must be masculine. And if you're a woman, you must be feminine. Um, And I think uh, I would want to revise the decision to get across how not only is transgender discrimination, sex discrimination as a matter of text, but that um, recognizing transgender discrimination claims as sex discrimination claims is completely of a piece with what sex discrimination law has I would argue, always thought to do, which is fight these types of sex stereotypes. And, and doing so would, I think, address some of the, the potential future consequences of the Bostock decision that you identify and argue um, exists specifically in the, the area of religious exemptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, claim, the concerns I raise about what's missing from the Bostock case are twofold. Um, First, I think that there are potential legal consequences. Um, One of the most important pieces of commentary, I think, coming out of this past term in the court um, was the court's treatment of religion that over the past several terms, actually, um, and given the composition of the court and the likely change in composition of the court, um, we're only likely to see expanding um, recognition of religious freedom defenses. And in fact, Uh, the Bostock decision specifically invites religious freedom defenses um, for religious employers. And it raises this saying, well, don't worry too much about, you know, the impact on religious employers because they can always bring religious freedom defense. Um, And that's pretty interesting um, because in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, um, a case from the mid uh, 2010s out of the Supreme Court, there's a suggestion in that decision that it's not clear that RIFRA claims would apply. That's the acronym mm-hmm. I just used for religious freedom defense claims, that RIFRA claims would even apply to um, Title VII um, actions. Um, so here the court is specifically inviting them. Um, and a lot of the commentary is about, you know, the sort of fulsome treatment that we might expect from this court to religious freedom defenses. And so if we, if we sort of weaken the understanding of transgender discrimination as sex discrimination, it's going to make it harder to withstand religious freedom defenses. Um, And this comes up in the trial court um, in the Amy Stevens case. There, the court granted the religious freedom defense um, precisely because the court failed to understand how transgender plaintiffs furthered the anti-stereotyping aims of sex discrimination law. Um, So I think failing to make this connection, failing to see how transgender discrimination um, furthers the goals of sex discrimination law may um, end up coming in um, to weaken these claims against religious freedom defenses. Um, And the other piece is just the sociological reality um, of the place of transgender rights in our society. There has been sort of a longstanding suspicion at best and, and you know, hostility uh, at worst uh, by some members. And I think it's fair to say this is the distinct minority, but some members of the women's rights community um, worried about um, transgender persons um, reinforcing sex-based stereotypes. Uh, there was some commentary um, when Caitlyn Jenner uh, began presenting as a woman, you know, she's reinforcing stereotypes. She's, you know, all dressed up and dolled up. And she, you know, is suggesting that this is how women are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when decisions like Bostock, you know, they get major attention 
for transgender rights, which is, which is really important. Um, but they don't fight these types of ideas that um, transgender persons um, are just reinforcing stereotypes. So in terms of solidarity across movements, um, I think it's important that there is uh, much more public attention paid to the connections between transgender rights and the aims that women's rights groups have long sought to achieve. And at the end of your article, you call on other commentators and the courts to join you uh, in making clear, and, and here's a quote, how transgender persons fight sex stereotypes in the same way as traditional victims of sex discrimination because transgender discrimination is motivated by the same sorts of sex stereotypes that have long been recognized to hold women and men back on the basis of their sex. Um, from our, our conversation today, it, it sounds like since Bostock, there's been a significant amount of progress, but there's still some significant issues out there. Um, would you would you say that's a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, I think there's I think there's been a huge amount of progress um, with the Bostock decision. Um, now we have obviously Supreme Court precedent that says that transgender discrimination is sex discrimination. Um, we still have some unanswered questions. The court punted on the question of sex classification cases. Um, it says you know the issue wasn't presented. There are you know the other side presented sort of a parade of horribles. What about bathrooms um, and dress codes and all of these other areas where we still accept um, sex-based rules? And the court says that's for another day. So we don't know how that's going to be decided. I referenced before these religious freedom defenses. We don't know how those are going to fare. We don't know how broadly Bostock is going to apply. Mm -hmm. This is a textual analysis of one statute, right, of Title VII, um, but we don't know how courts will apply this decision to other statutes. And I think one of the biggest questions is how is this going to apply to constitutional discrimination claims under the Equal Protection Clause, which doesn't contain the term sex at all. Um, so we have a lot of questions about how far Bostock is going to extend. Um, but I do think it's progress. And I would just call on other commentators and courts to join me in my effort to make this connection between transgender discrimination and the aims of sex discrimination law. I think those courts and commentators have a fantastic touchstone to do so off your article. Um, does this mean I get to look forward to another article and then potentially another conversation next year? Maybe. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> this has been really fun. It has been. It has been. Professor Schoenbaum, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. For current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.